Father, as I stand up here behind this pulpit, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that I'm unworthy, that I am incapable of effectively preaching your word. God, there, there's no eloquent poem I can put together that will convince anybody to trust in you. There's, there's nothing that I can do, Father, apart from you and apart from your spirit working through me. And so, Lord, I pray in these moments that you would increase, that I would decrease, just as John the Baptist prayed. Lord, that you would speak to us from your holy word. That Holy Spirit, you might move through the reading, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word to inspire us, to convict us where we have wandered from you, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord, to comfort those of us who may be hurting and mourning and grieving. God, the most amazing thing that regardless of the speaker or the speaker's righteousness, you are good and you are righteous and you are capable of accomplishing all of those things all at the same time. So we ask, Spirit, that you would come and move among us, that you would teach us as we do our best to humbly sit at your feet and listen and learn from your greatness. We ask all these things in the name of the Father of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This Sunday we are moving out of 1 Thessalonians. As the Sunday school curriculum is moving into 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we are complete with our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. And just as, as Greg alluded to in his prayer, we have entered into a season in the church's liturgical calendar known as Lent. This season is very important. This is a great season that oftentimes, as Southern Baptists, we miss out on a lot of the good things in the liturgical calendar. So what happened this past week was Mardi Gras. You may be familiar with Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is a very simple phrase. It means Fat Tuesday. So what was going on is that for years the Catholic Church began to have this Lenten season where you fasted and prepared and focused on Easter coming up and what Christ did for us on the cross, what his death, what his burial, what his resurrection means for the whole world. And so part of how you fasted is that you abstained from different types of foods and different things for about 40 days. So you go from Ash Wednesday all the way until Easter Sunday. And so in that 40-day time frame, people kind of were like, man, this is, this is going to kind of stink to not be able to eat this red meat and not be able to eat the things that I really love eating. Um, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a really big feast the day before Ash Wednesday and Mardi Gras was born. We have Fat Tuesday to prepare for the Lenten season. And so what we're going to do here at Bethany is that we're going to prepare our hearts for Easter by spending the next seven weeks specifically looking at who Jesus is and who Jesus said that he was, that he is, that he always will be. And so there's seven different statements that many people are familiar with in the Gospel of John where Jesus takes on the name that God gives out in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. Jesus takes on the title of God as he is talking to the crowds. Jesus says he is, and then he adds a metaphor at the end. And so there's seven different metaphors. So that's what we're going to be walking through from now until Easter. And I would strongly encourage you that if you feel led of the Lord to do so, start tomorrow morning and pick something in your life 
that you can fast from that will help you to focus on this season leading up to Easter. There's all sorts of examples of partial fasts within Scripture. It doesn't mean that you have to go without food. It doesn't mean that you have to go without food and water. But there are things in our lives that we have allowed to become idols. There's things in our lives that maybe they're not idolatrous, but boy, they're our favorite thing. And we crave it. And what we do when we fast is withhold that thing that we love. That's why food is so essential in most fasts, because you tend to get hungry about three times a day. And when that hunger stirs up in your gut, you're reminded to pray. You're reminded to focus on who God is and what God has done for us. A lot of times people have taken fasting and treated it as a way of grabbing the Lord's arm and twisting his arm to force him to do what you're praying about. But that's not what fasting is about. You and I can't force God to do anything. We can ask, we can plead, we can beg. And our prayers have an effect on God the Father. But fasting is not a way of holding your breath to demand that your parents give you what you want. Instead, fasting is a way to focus our hearts, our minds, and our souls on who is our sustainer. On what really sustains us. And it's not the things that we crave in this world, including food. So, I would encourage you, think through this service, through the rest of the day. How might you fast in preparation for Easter? What might you give up? And then when you crave that thing, it reminds you to focus on this 40-day period leading up to when Jesus died on a cross for our sins. So, we're going to start this morning with the first I am statement, including a metaphor behind it, in John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Gospel of John chapter 6. If you don't happen to have your own Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you that there are plenty of Bibles in the pews. In the back of the pew there in front of you, there's, if you're on the front row, there's one down in front of you in the, in the floor if you need to borrow it. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, please take that as our gift to you. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't own your own copy of God's Word, let that be a gift from us to you. Regardless of if you're accessing the Word of the Lord in printed form or in digital or you're just following along on the screen, I would ask if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. As we look together now at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. I'll read for us, and when I've concluded, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with a hearty thanks be to God. Let's look together now, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. The word of the Lord says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, I know everybody might be suffering from a little bit of shock right now, okay? (laughs) February the 26th marked the fifth anniversary of the trial sermon that I preached here at Bethany. And so for the last five years, there's never been a single time I've gotten up here and asked everybody to stand and read one verse and asked everybody to sit back down. But when we're going through these I am statements, 
and especially John chapter 6, you've got two options. You can read verse 35 or you can read all 71 verses. And so we're going to talk through John chapter 6. We're going to talk through what is happening. I urge you, I encourage you, spend the rest of this week taking chunks of John chapter 6 and reading them and eating them and chewing on them. Those 71 verses are extremely powerful. And Jesus says multiple times throughout that chapter that he is the bread of life. This is what's incredible to me because Jesus does not mix his words. In Hebrew, when you look in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it's very straightforward what God says to Moses. In Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Some of you may be familiar with this, but they were so reverent in regard to the name of God that they would cut it out of the parchment. They would cut it out of the text or they would mark through it to make sure that a name that was so revered wouldn't be read out loud. So in Hebrew, you don't necessarily have vowels. You have vowel indicators on the letters, little dots, little symbols that they put around it. And so to make sure that nobody accidentally spoke the name of God, they took the vowel sounds from the Hebrew word Adonai and they overlaid them on top of the consonants for the name I am. So what we end up with is a permutation that kind of carried on throughout the ages. And you have this version of God's name where we say Jehovah. Jehovah is an amalgamation of a bunch of different transliterations of all the Hebrew people trying so hard not to say the name of the Lord. But the closest transliteration we can have to I am who I am are just the Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H. So if you ever hear me from this pulpit, refer to the Lord as Yahweh. That's the best guess of what we have of what God's name, when he revealed it to Moses, was, is, and forever will be. And it's it's just a play on the Hebrew word that means to be. God says to Moses, I am the eternal. I have always been. I am. I will always be. When Moses needed to know what's the name of the God that I'm coming to talk to the Israelites about before I tell them that this God has raised me up, this God from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this is the God who will lead you out of Egypt. How do I tell them who you are? And God's most important message to them is I am, I exist, I will be with you because I'm not going anywhere. I am, I was, I is, and I am, and I will always be. That's the name of God that's given to Moses. Protected, respected through thousands of years. Nobody would say what Jesus said. And he said in the most clear and straightforward way, I am. Equating himself with God. Not a creature created by God the Father, but one and the same with God. He is not the firstborn as in a timeline of being the first creation. He is firstborn in his role as the head of all things. There's never a time when he was not. Jesus always was. 
Jesus always is. Jesus forever will be. And so when Jesus talks about this phrase, I am, he is intentionally equating himself with God. And so some people may ask you and may say, you know, I just don't think that there's anywhere in Scripture that I've read where Jesus directly says the things that we believe about him today. Well, take them to these seven I am statements. Because when Jesus says, I am, he is saying, I am God. He's giving himself the name God. If you don't know me and I come up to you and I introduce you, myself to you, and I say, my name is Jason, then the only thing you know me by is Jason. Everybody in this congregation may know me as Nathan. But when I give you a name, that's what you recognize as who I am. I'm impersonating Jason. It is a federal offense to impersonate a law officer. Because if that's not who you say you are, it's fraud and it's a serious crime that you can go to jail for a long time for. That's why it was such a big deal when Jesus said, my name is the same name that you've been talking to God and using for God. That's me. I am the Messiah. When he says, I am, people get enraged. In John chapter 8, he's talking to all these religious leaders and all these Pharisees, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. It's not because there's not some sort of way to say, I was. He could have said, I existed before Abraham. He could have said, I was before Abraham. He didn't say, I was. He said, I am, because he's saying he is God. It's important to know that because as we think through this Easter season, God himself humbled himself and took the form of a regular human being like you and like me. Fully God and fully man. And so when we come to these I am statements, he says in various ways throughout the Gospel of John that he is the bread of life what we're looking at today. He is the light of the world in John chapter 8. He is the door of the sheep in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd again in John chapter 10. He is the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. He is the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. He is the true vine in John chapter 15. Seven different times at least in the gospel of John, Jesus tells us he is God. In a very straightforward way that everyone listening to him would know what he said. Because most of the time when he said it, they tried to kill him. And so that's why these statements carry such incredible weight. But now let's spend the remainder of our time looking specifically at the bread of life. The bread of life. Here's what's happened up to this point in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. He probably, if you count everybody there, fed roughly fifteen to 20,000 people. And from two loaves and some fish, he, he gives this tiny Lunchable and he continues to multiply it until everyone is fed. And then there's 12 baskets left over. And the crowd is filled to capacity. It's not just one of those like, you know, I could eat more, but I think I'm going to stop here. Nobody could take another bite. They were stuffed. 
He had compassion on them. He had mercy. He gave them bread. Do you see the beauty of how the Gospel of John is written? That what leads up to Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, starts in the beginning of John chapter 6, where he feeds 5,000 people from bread and fish. Everything about this is trying to point us to who Jesus is and what this metaphor means for us. Then he walks on water to catch up with the apostles as he sends them on ahead. And then in the night, he walks across the water and catches up to him. And when he touches the boat, boom, the boat is there on the other shore. And so Jesus speeds up their travel. He walks on water. Miracles are happening left and right. Then the crowds realize that Jesus moved to the other side of the lake. And so they all rush to the boats and run around the lake and try to get to where Jesus is. He feeds them, and so they follow him. You know, we've always heard from Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. But I'm telling you, the truth of Southern culture, if you feed them, they will come. If you feed them well, they will come back. And Jesus fed them really well. I can tell you this, okay? Based on who is cooking on a Wednesday night, our attendance on Wednesday night fluctuates. You feed somebody good, and there's going to be a lot of people show up, all right? When we call out and order food and bring it in because we don't have enough people to cook all the really good homemade meals, people know, you guys know, y'all look at that menu in there, and y'all are like, eh, I think I'll just be there at 6.30. Or, eh, maybe I won't come tonight. When you feed people, they will come. When you feed them really good... They come back. Jesus fed these people really good. And they chased him because they got hungry again. Not because they were hungry for his words. They were hungry for the food that he gave them. And then all the religious leaders are peppering him with questions. He's being interrogated. And all of this is coming to a head. And then he says what we see in John chapter chapter 6, verse 35. Look with me at how the conversation continues. Pick up in verse 41 with me. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, truly Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus is at one of the most heightened points of his popularity. And they're, they're pressing him hard on this. This is like when he talks to Nicodemus. All these Pharisees, all these religious leaders, all these people grumble because they can't follow the metaphor. Nicodemus is like, what does it mean to be born again? And 
Jesus has to explain it over and over in the same way Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And y'all, he fed 15, maybe 20,000 people, and they all left. Some of them probably left going, what did I just eat? He said I had to eat his flesh. That bread came from somewhere. What's this crazy man doing? Y'all, you gotta, you got to admit, if I stood up here and I said, the only way for salvation is if you come up here and partake of me. Feast on my flesh, drink my blood, and you will be saved. Like if y'all rushed the stage and tried to do that, I'd be really worried about you guys. I mean, I'd be a little worried about myself because I probably wouldn't survive that experience. But seriously, if somebody stood up in front of you and said that, you're going to go, it's been great talking to you. I just, I I think that maybe we have a slight difference of opinion and, um, you know, wish you the best, but I'm just going to be about as far away from you as I can be. All right, I'll see you later. Here we go. And somebody cuts themselves and pours their blood into a cup and offers it to you. You're going to run. And if you don't, let me tell you right now, run from that person. That's not normal. And nobody can get past the physical, literal reality of he's saying you've got to feast on me. That's a tough thing to get by the disciples later in chapter six after that conversation will say this is a hard saying jesus man normally you break it down for us but we can't seem to figure this out and it says towards the end of chapter six that many people turned and left they couldn't handle it anymore you know that's the moment when you're at the height of your ministry When everybody's coming to see you and listen to you, that's when you offer the really encouraging Joel Osteen sermon, right? Joel Osteen's not going to tell you about about your sin and try to make you feel bad. He's going to tell you all the really happy, positive, nice things. And when you have 17,000 people lined up in a baseball arena, that's when you want to tell them happy, nice things. If Jesus had any sense, right, he would have just said some really nice, happy things like, hey, you know what? You can live forever. Trust in me and you will live forever. And he says, no, you got to eat my flesh. He gives them the really hard stuff. Every time crowds flock to him, he gives harder and deeper teachings. And the people go, ooh, this guy's kind of crazy. I don't know if I'm going to follow him anymore. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go home. I'm going to think about what he said. I may not come back. Even to the point that at the end of the chapter, he he looks at his disciples and he goes, well, you guys going to abandon me too? And they look at him and they say, where where else would we go? Lord, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? They don't get it, but they're still devoted. You know, I, I wonder how many of us are like the disciples in that moment. How many of us, we read these statements and he says, I am the bread of life. And it doesn't really make any sense to you. You're like, oh, okay. All right. He's the bread of life. I don't really get it. But I'm just going to trust him and I'm going to keep following him. How many of us read these crazy things in the Bible and we go, eh. I mean, I'll go to church every once in a while because, you know, I don't want people to think I'm, I'm like, you know, weird or anything. Especially in our context here in South Alabama. But we don't trust and we're turned off. What he says. There's a lot to be said for trusting until we understand. Faith, seeking, understanding. It's okay to not understand. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't have a clue what he meant. But they knew 
he had the words of eternal life. And they said, we got nowhere else to go. This morning, as we continue through this passage, as we continue to talk about what it means that Jesus is the bread of life, if you don't get anything else, just know this. Jesus is the only way. And even if you started reading now and studied for the rest of your life, you'd never understand it all. Ever. And so on a lot of levels, you just have to say, God, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know if I'm ever going to get it. But you have the words of eternal life. Where else could I go? Oh, man, there's power in trusting in the Lord in that way. God's not asking you to be the greatest scholar that's ever lived. God's not asking you to be able to explain all the depths of Scripture. God's asking you to come to Him with faith like a child. My kids come to me because they got nowhere else to go. Man, how misfortunate for them, right? <laughs> but they come to me and they run to me because they know we don't really understand, but Dad can fix it. Dad can make it work. Whether I know what I'm talking about or not, they run to me because who else is going to give them the best advice that he knows to give? Who else is always going to have their best interest at heart? They may not understand. They may not see it, but they come running to me because they know they can trust me. That's how we're supposed to run to Christ. It's, it's not complex. It's not some super extravagant five-star meal. It's bread. You don't have to know what flavors complement other flavors. It's bread. It's the basic building block of every meal. I've heard a guy that made a big, long argument on the Internet about how everything we eat is either a soup or a sandwich. Well, then that means 50% of everything we eat involves bread. So bread's a staple. I know, I know, I know right now nobody likes bread. The, the, the cool, hip thing to do is to be gluten-free and, you know, to be no carbs. And every diet's like low carbs. You know, limit how many carbs you bring in so you can lose weight, okay? They didn't do that back in Jesus' day, all right? They needed carbs. They were all wasting away. Give me the carbs. We want some energy. If you've ever done a no-carb diet, you will understand why it is so hard to stay on a no-carb diet. You wake up the day two or three and you're like, Somebody just give me a pizza. I just, I got to eat something. I need some bread. Can somebody give me some bread? And then you look at that next salad and you're like, I can't do keto anymore. Jesus is the basic building block of our life. Bread is just a basic, grains are a basic building block of our nutrition. That's why Jesus uses bread. It's not fancy. It's not complicated. He doesn't say it's a baguette. He doesn't say anything. He just says it's bread. And then the most incredible thing is that he just used bread in an analogy when he fed the 15,000 people. So now he's saying he is that bread that he just fed to all of them. You've got to eat of this bread. This is the same kind of metaphor that he uses in John chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well. And he says, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, if you understood what was going on in this moment right now, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. Jesus carries on in this same metaphor. If you would seek the bread that I am, that I have, then you will never be hungry again. And how often are we hungry for that bread? Not just the bread in the cupboard, but the very Word of God. Jesus then makes this incredible connection. Back to Exodus. Everything in the Bible is pointing to the fact that we need Jesus. 
Everything, even in Exodus. Turn with me back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. I want you to look with me in chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Even as we're reading stories and we think, all right, this is about the Israelites. This is about what's going on with them. It's actually pointing to Jesus. In verse 13 of chapter 16, the word of the Lord says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a really fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that God has given you to eat. It is the bread that whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters in your Bible, that means that in that spot it has the name Yahweh. It is the bread that the I Am has given you to eat. You see, the I Am gave us bread to eat. The whole point of giving the frosted flakes of manna to the Israelites was to point to the fact that you can't find the food you need. And God will provide the food that you need. And not just the physical, literal food, but in a spiritual reality. I know it's abstract. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around. Jesus is the bread that he sent from heaven. The same way that the manna was just some sort of fine frost, bread-like, flake-like thing on the grass after the dew was gone. The same way, that's Jesus. He just shows up on the scene. And here's the most incredible thing. The word in Hebrew, manna. Do you, do you know what that word means? It means, what is it? So, in verse 15, when it says that they said to one another, what is it? If you're reading that in Hebrew, it goes, and they said to one another, Mana, what is it? Oh, it's manna. What, what do we call this stuff that shows up on the ground every morning? We call it what is it? Hey, have you had your what is it this morning? We call them frosted flakes, but you know, they call it your what is it. Man, that what is it was tasting good today. Did you make a what is it sandwich with your quail? You know, you save your quail from the evening because the Lord provided some meat. And then you put it between two pieces of what is it and you have yourself a quail sandwich. Folks, that's just what they called it. What is it? Do you understand that nobody got who Jesus was? And when he told them who he was, they left because they all said, what is it? What is this? Who is this guy? He is the manna because they're asking, what is it? In every way, this story is intricately tied to what happens in Exodus. And Exodus 16 is pointing us to there'll come a day when God will not just provide the manna that's frosted flakes on the ground to eat, but he'll provide the manna, the what is it, the Savior to redeem us from our sinful state. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Thousands of years before Jesus, the manna is pointing to Jesus. 700 years before Jesus, in Isaiah 55, Jesus fulfills in John 4 and here in John 6 what Isaiah 55 says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the rich food. And so especially as we draw into Lent, especially as we draw closer to Easter, I wonder, how you doing on taking in your carbs? How you doing on feasting on Jesus? Where does Jesus rank in your daily requirements? Where does running to Him rank when you find yourself in trouble? It's amazing. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever thought that maybe that prayer isn't just talking about our physical needs and the food that we need for the day? Have you ever thought that maybe when we say, give us this day our daily bread, it's supposed to partly be us saying, Jesus, we need more of you today. Jesus, I need my daily dose of the bread of life. How often are we feasting on the bread of life as opposed to shoving our faces with simple and complex carbs all throughout the day? How often do we look anywhere but to Jesus? Jesus is God. And He is God in a form that we can reach. He is God in a way that is approachable. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He made Himself available to us. And for all of those who would call upon His name, they will be saved. And He says He is the bread of life. And if you partake of the bread of Christ, you'll never be hungry again. If you drink of His living water, you'll never be thirsty again. I wonder, how, how are we doing on eating that bread? Drinking that water? How often do you go back to the well? How often do you get up in the morning and look for the manna? But what is it? Not frosted flakes on the ground. The Savior Himself. How often is He where we turn? And this morning I just wonder, is there anybody here maybe who's never eaten that bread for the very first time? Is there anybody here who maybe has never trusted in Jesus? I want to urge you this morning. He invites all to come. If you're thirsty, come to the living water. If you're hungry, come to the bread of life. Jesus will satisfy. And He will not turn you away. Would you trust in Him? This morning, if you've already trusted in Him, maybe you've been walking alongside Him for years. I wonder if just the hardship of life has beaten you down and distracted you to a point where you gave up on carbs. You thought, I need a diet. 
And I'm not going to eat that bread anymore. Folks, these are the best carbs for you in all the universe. There's nothing better to feast on than the bread of life. Every day. Every day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are the bread of life. That you have given of yourself to save us. That you died on a cross, a death you didn't deserve. That you took the punishment and the penalty for our sin. And in the midst of all of that, you offer us the life we never deserved. Lord, you offer us eternal life if we would feast on your bread and drink of your living water. It's a hard saying, Lord. But God, help us. Help us to feast on your word daily. Help us, Father, to understand and acknowledge that you are the bread of life. Help us to run to you in all of our time of need. And Father, if there's anyone listening to the sound of my voice, in person or online or wherever, Lord, and they don't know you, they've never taken that first step to trust in you, I pray that you would move on their hearts now. Invite them to the table that they might feast with you and enjoy the bread of life and life eternal here to come. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, to you, God, our Father in heaven, amen.